Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. So we continue our study through this gospel, this account of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're in Matthew chapter 8 today. The title of this message is Living Under the Authority of Jesus. Living under the authority of Jesus. I'll begin with a seemingly controversial statement. Authority is a wonderful thing. When was the last time you heard someone say that? Authority is such a wonderful thing. But so many people hate it. They despise the thought of submission. And I'm not just talking about people out in the world. I'm talking about us right in here. We hate it too. We're all libertarians at heart. Give us as much freedom as, per- as possible, as much personal autonomy as we can handle. We despise authority, but this is, this is not a new thing. This is not the spirit of our age. Uh, this is an ancient problem, right? It goes back all the way to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember how Satan twisted their view on authority. God had given us a whole garden to enjoy, a whole paradise on earth to enjoy, except for just one tree that he had kept from us. There was just one tree he had said no to. A vast garden of yes and a tree of no. And Satan's whole plan was to get us to focus solely on that no. He said to them, God's holding out on you. You see that good looking tree over there, that that fine looking fruit? God knows you'd enjoy that. And he's keeping it from you. In essence, he was saying to them, don't you think you ought to be able to decide for yourself what's good and bad? what's right or wrong for you. And this was so twisted of him, so slippery of him. Satan was basically saying, wouldn't it be better if you were in control of your own life? And that's really why we hate authority. Because we want to be in control of our own lives. And so ever since the fall, now we live in a world where we despise authority and we despise submission. Isaiah 5 says, this people, they call what is evil good and what is good evil. And that's like our day. We call authority evil and we call autonomy good. It's like Paul says in Philippians 2, now we live, we're to shine as lights because we live in this crooked and twisted generation. It's crooked and it's twisted. It takes authority, which is this this wonderful thing in God's eyes. It's even a part of his character. He is the sovereign one. But this generation takes his authority and it twists it into this horrible thing and says, you don't want to submit, you want your freedom. Why? 
Oh, it's the thing we don't say. Because you want to be in control. I remember growing up in a Christian home, like many of you have here. I went to church, my parents taught me the gospel, and there was a part of me that really believed it all. I mean, really did. I could appreciate Jesus dying for my sins. I really could. I thought that was great, like that he would want to die for me. Fantastic, thank you. I'd rather not go to hell. I'd rather go to heaven. I can take that. That's a good deal. You die for my sins. Fantastic. I never, ever in my life objected to that idea. What I objected to was that it came with a bunch of rules and commands. I saw that as bad. That I rejected. I would never reject Jesus dying for me. I rejected living under his authority. My oldest kids are approaching the teenage years. Please pray for me. I'm not really looking forward to it. Because what do teenagers do? They buck authority. They buck authority. I mean, they do other things too, I guess, probably. They sit in front of TV, and, but they buck authority. <laughs> they do do good things too, but they buck authority. Their teacher's authority, which in our case happens to be their mom, the world's authority, my authority, and here's the things, parents of teens tell me if I'm wrong, they love being under our protection, they love being under our provision, especially love that, the safe and abundant life that we give them, but they don't like living under our authority. Am I right? Parents of teens? Okay. Just making sure I'm on the right track and understanding this. So here's my goal. Here's my goal. To be such a great and loving father to my kids. Such a good authority, but that, that by the time they leave my home, when they go out into this wild world on their own, they'll look back and be grateful for the time they lived under my authority. And one way I want to do that is modeling for them what it's like to live gratefully under authority. And especially living under, gratefully, the authority of Jesus Christ. I want my kids to know I love living under the authority of Jesus Christ. It is such a good and safe place to be. I used to not get it, but the psalmist says it. God's commands are good and they lead to life. I get that now. I want my kids to see that I get that and that's why I'm happy to live under his authority. I mean, do you remember the lesson of the, of the book of Judges? It was just this horrible time in Israel. It was just a horrible time in history. And again and again, the phrase that's repeated is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. There was no authority over the people. And it was such a horrible time. In fact, the book ends saying, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. There was no authority. So how significant is it then that Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come, he's Jesus. 
The good news is we have a king. We're not like those under judges who had no king. We have a king. We have a good king. We get to be a part of his kingdom. This is all the good news of the gospel. And not only do we get his protection and his provision, but we get to live under his authority as well. And Jesus gives us commands and he gives us rules and he leads us, but it's all for our good. See, here's the thing. We are in a section of Matthew's gospel that's all about the authority of Jesus, his divine authority. And after last week's message, I had a number of you come up and talk to me or email me in the week and ask me, you know, Jesus, why did, or Jesus, I'm not Jesus. Why would you call me that? Don't call me that. You didn't call me that. I called me that. That was Freudian slip. Um, Jace, you said, why didn't you talk more about healing in this passage, healing people in our days, the spiritual gift of healing, praying for people with healing. And I get it. I love that you're interested in in that. I I love that you care about that. Lord willing, we're going to get there in Matthew. We're going to get there and we're going to get to things like practicing practicing spiritual warfare and battling to my, we're going to get to all that, but that comes later. That comes when Jesus sends the disciples out to do what he has been doing. That's when we're going to talk about that. But this section of Matthew, this is all about Jesus. And it's all about his authority and seeing his divine authority. Chapters eight and nine are all about the divine authority of Jesus Christ. Last week we studied Jesus's authority over disease. Remember how powerfully he healed the leper? Touch the man, he's just healed, he's cleansed. And there was the centurion servant and there's Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus has authority over disease just like the promised Messiah was going to come and have, Matthew taught us. Next week, we're gonna look at at that time Jesus was in the boat and there was this great storm with waves swamping the boat and the disciples are all terrified and Jesus rebukes, he stands up, he just rebukes the storm. And we're told there was a great calm and the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? The answer? This is not just some sort of man. This is the God man. This is the creator. This is the one who has all authority over his creation. Then Matthew's gonna tell us about the time when Jesus came across two demon-possessed men, so fierce that no one could pass by them. But what does Jesus do? He rebukes the demons, and what do they do? They come under his authority. They do what he says, they obey him. Jesus has authority over demons. Then chapter nine begins with this paralyzed man. People bring him to Jesus and he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And everyone freaks out. Who are you to say people's sins are forgiven? And Jesus says, what's this easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. And so he tells the guy, rise up and walk. And what's the guy do? Rises up and walks. What's the point? Jesus got all authority over sin and sickness. And verse eight says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and glorified God who had given such authority to men. 
So Jesus has authority over disease. Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus has authority over demons. He has authority over sin. And the people are amazed at the power and the authority he wields. It's like nothing they've ever seen before. It's like nothing that's ever happened in this world before. There's no one like Jesus. And then chapter nine, verse nine, we read, and Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Have you ever looked at that passage in this context before? The same man that commands diseases and they obey, commands storms and they obey, commands demons and they obey, commands forgiveness and it comes about, commands people now and they obey him. That's what Jesus' disciples do. They count the cost and choose to live under his authority because we are convinced he is God of gods. Lord of lords, King of kings. Jesus possesses absolute authority in this world, therefore we give him our absolute obedience. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to live under his authority. But first, he would have us Count the cost. Count the cost. Is that really what you want? And this brings us really to our passage today. Here in verses 18 through 22, through the story of of two would-be disciples, Matthew challenges us to count the cost in following Jesus. Do we really want to? Are we really willing to live under his authority? Because there's no following Jesus if you're not living under his authority. You're just kidding yourself. Jesus doesn't accept you. He ain't called you if you won't live under his authority. So Jesus, Jesus, but, but Jesus doesn't want you to live deceived. He doesn't want you, He wants you to understand. So he makes it very clear. He tests you. And that's what we see in our passage here today. So let's read this passage. Please follow along. I'm going to read Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. This is the holy and authoritative word of God. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. May the Lord bless now both the preaching and the believing of his word. All right, I wanna show you first the kind of crowd control that Jesus exercises here. That's what we're looking at first here. So 
What's happening as we come into this passage is Jesus has healed, he's been doing miracles, and it's starting to, he's starting to draw this large crowd that's gathering around him. That's what we see in verse 18. They're on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. This huge crowd is gathering around Jesus. And so Jesus sees them, he sees them coming, he knows the hearts of men, he knows why they're coming. And so he gives orders to his disciples to set sail over to the other side of the lake. And this was to get away from the crowd. And I think that's really interesting. I think that's really interesting. I thought a lot this week about how Jesus responds to crowds. In this passage, a crowd gathers and Jesus just ups and leaves. Like you gotta imagine like this huge audience gathering, people are traveling from the countryside. You know, this guy go, oh, hey, I, oh, I just got here. I heard there's, I heard Jesus was doing stuff. Like what's, where's Jesus, what's going on? Oh yeah, buddy, you just, he, we all just got here and he got in the boat and he just left. What'd he say? He said, going to the other side. What? <laughs> okay, in Matthew 13, here's another example. We're told there's a ton of people gathering around Jesus again. Matthew calls them a great crowd this time. So it's even bigger. This is a large crowd. They've come from all over the region. Other gospels say from the cities around. And Jesus looks out over the crowd and he says to them, it's great that you've all come. I hope you bring a friend next week. No, that's not what he says. No, when he saw the crowd, Matthew says he started teaching them in parables, saying this, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced, produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirty. And then Jesus just stops and says, he who has ears, let him hear. And then it says he's done. Then he's done. That's it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, disciples, let's go. Let's go. We're done here. And they come up to him and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? What, what does that even mean? It's the parable of the sower, the parable of soils, right? This great crowd, and he speaks them in this parable, and he gets over the parable, and he just, he's done. If you, have, if you understand, you understand. If you don't, you don't. And he's done. And Matthew says, the disciples came up to him, and they say, what was, they say, why do you speak to them like that? And Jesus says, to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables. Listen to this, he says, so that seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. <laughs> so Jesus says to the disciples, listen, I'll explain things to you whom God is drawing to myself and whom you actually come up and you say, what does all this mean, Jesus? Like you actually wanna know, so I'll explain it to you. But this crowd, I spoke in such a way that they will see me, but they won't really get me. And they will hear me, but they don't really understand me. So Jesus' design for the crowd was to intentionally confuse them. Why would Jesus do that? 
I mean, I'm really wrestling with this because I am the opposite of Jesus. I like crowds. I mean, I do, I like when this room is full of people. Like, I like, I mean, do you like that? I like that. Maybe it's just because I'm a preacher. I like it, I like crowds. And I'm not like Jesus, I stress out afraid that everyone's not going to get what I'm saying. And Jesus intentionally says things that people will not understand. But Jesus explains why he does this in the parable of the soils. Because Jesus is the farmer sowing the seed of the gospel. And like a good farmer, he works with good soil. He's not going to keep watering the seed that fell on rocky ground where the root's not really going to take, knowing that one day when it gets hard, those disciples are just going to ditch him. And he's not going to go and fertilize seed that fell on thorny ground, knowing that the cares of the world are just going to come up and choke the plant and make these disciples unfruitful. No, Jesus is just not going to work with those people. Jesus works with the good soil, with the disciples who run up to him afterwards and say, Jesus, what does this mean? That's who Jesus is gonna invest in. You see what Jesus, I mean, Jesus is just not like us. Jesus would not water rocks or fertilize thorns. And I'm wondering if we spend a lot of time watering rocks and fertilizing thorns. Because we want to preach to hundreds week after week, not dozens who are left still wondering what we're teaching and talking about. I feel that. I feel that real temptation all the time. I like big crowds. I like a full room. But Jesus did not get excited about crowds. It's like he got skeptical. Are you sure y'all want to follow after me? He does the same thing over in Luke chapter 14. It's the same thing. Sorry for this little count, you know, smaller study on crowds, but I, I think it goes to the point of the passage here. It's so shocking how he responds to crowds. Luke 14, verse 25 and 26. Now great crowds were told, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, can you imagine? Great crowds following Jesus. Hey, this guy's doing stuff. He's got the word. You're like, let's find out what he's got to do. Let's find out what he's doing. Jesus sees these great crowds. He turns around and he looks at them and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, are we so used to these passages that we, for, we, we miss how shocking they would have been? You have a huge crowd, Jesus. You don't turn around and say, hate your mom and dad or you can't follow me. That's like public speaking 101. That's like church building 101. You don't, you don't intro your message that way. Okay, everybody who does not hate their mom and father may leave the church today. Go ahead, leave, just go, just go. Who do I got left, anybody? I mean, that's not how you do it. That's how the Lord does it. Jesus turns and he sees this crowd following him, but he's skeptical that they're actually willing to follow him. So he says, all right, let's just clear this up, guys. Your dad, your mom, your wife, your kids, would you leave all of them to follow me? If not, don't even. Just don't. You you can't be my disciple. 
And listen, Jesus isn't saying this hypothetically. Either they leave to follow him or they don't. This is not a hypothetical. This is real life. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm about to walk out that door. I'm about to walk out that door. And if you want to follow me, understand, you may never see your family again. Are you ready for that? Am I that great to you? Am I like a treasure hidden in a field that you found and you're willing to sell everything to get? Am I the pearl of greatest price for you? Is that what I'm worth to you? Because Jesus says, because you don't know what's outside that door when you follow me. You don't know what I'm leading you into. There may be a cross outside that door. which we're both going to pick up and bear. And Jesus, see, I want you to hear this, not just see the provoking nature of Jesus. Jesus wants you to come to terms with him. He doesn't want you to live this kind of like, well, yeah, I kind of follow Jesus, but then I don't get why God doesn't do certain things for me. And I just always feel conflicted in my heart. Like I want to follow Jesus, but I don't actually want to follow Jesus, but I'm afraid to be honest about that. Jesus is like, no, let's just be honest about this. Okay, because he, he knows, he actually knows, right? But he wants to help us know. Jesus really wants us to get this because he goes on in Luke 14 and he tells everybody, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet who comes against him with 20,000 men? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks them for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus just like presses this point again and again and again. Jesus says, follow me. It's like going to war. It's like being a king who has 10,000 and his enemy has 20,000 and he really needs to count the cost. Am I willing to go up against this enemy? Because it probably means I'm going to die. Probably means my guys are going to die. Jesus is saying, this is a war that I am in. And if you look at the world and you don't want to fight it, Jesus saying, then go make peace with it. Go make peace with it then. But those who follow me, we're going into a war. Guys, I don't think we have this war mentality as often as we need to. So that what happens, we get into hard situations and we just start complaining. Why is it like this? Why is it like, why is this happening? Why is it hard? I'm following Jesus. Why is he doing this? Why isn't he making my life this way? But I mean, but can you imagine if a soldier in a war ran into his officer's tent and started complaining, oh, they're shooting at me. Those guys out there, they're shooting at me. And the soldier, and the officer's like, what, what, what are you talking about? You know, out there, they're shooting at me and they're just throwing these things that just kind of explode and, and guys are dying. I didn't know it was going to be like this. And the officer's like, what are you talking about? This is a war. Of course it's going to be like this. Didn't you know what you were signing up for? Didn't you understand? Didn't you count the cost? 
Jesus wants us to count the cost ahead of time. If we don't want to follow him into the fight, then we should just go and make peace with this world because he doesn't want us to, one, be just beguiled, to be deceived. He wants, Jesus came to bring clarity, to bring truth, but he doesn't want us to quit halfway through either saying, well, I didn't know it means I couldn't date her. I didn't know it means I couldn't do this or that. I didn't know it meant I had to stay married to him. I didn't know that it meant I would have to give sacrificially to support this mission and ministry. I didn't mean that it, it meant I might lose my job. I didn't mean that, I didn't know it meant that me and my kids might be estranged. But Jesus wants us to count the cost, which is what we see in our passage. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he sees the crowd, so, I mean, there's a crowd, so expect a response from Jesus. He sees a crowd around him, and he gave orders, go over to the other side. So I want you to notice here. Now, okay, I'm, I'm really zeroing in on our passage for this last part of the message here because I want you to notice Jesus gives an order in this passage. He gives an order. In the Greek, the word means to state with force or authority what others must do. So the English doesn't quite capture, it's like Jesus commanded them. Jesus spoke with authority what they must do. So I'm trying to highlight here, Jesus' authority is still on display in this passage. It's all still about the authority of Jesus Christ. His disciples are those who live under his authority. If he says, go to the other side, they go. That's the issue here. But what happened is, by leaving the crowd like he's doing, by getting into these boats, Mark in his gospel tells us there were several boats that went with him. So, so imagine Jesus is saying, large crowd, see over here, let's go to the other side. There's a little array of boats. Guys are getting in. And Jesus is pressing here the issue of commitment. If you're one of mine, you get in the boat and you go. That's what you do. That's what my disciples do. He's leading to a point of decision. Do they obey Jesus' command, get in the boat and go, or do they stay and make peace with the world? Matthew Henry says in his commentary on this passage, the the English is a little old, but I think he gets it real well. He says, thus Jesus would try or test the multitudes that were about him, whether their zeal would carry them to follow him and attend on him when his preaching was removed to some distance. He says, many would be glad of such helps as Jesus had been rendering. He's talking about his his miracles and his healings and all these things. Many would be glad of such helps if they could have them next door. But who will not be, or who will not be pained to follow them to the other side? And thus Christ shook off those who were less zealous, and the perfect were made manifest. Jesus is testing the crowd, he's trying the crowd. And he's going to shake off those who are not serious about following him and manifest, bring into light who are truly zealous for him. He's testing their commitment and their zeal to live under his authority. And that's when these two guys approach him, two would-be disciples. 
Both say they're willing to go with Jesus to follow after him, but Jesus bids them to count the cost first. And through this, he's bidding us to do the same. On the surface, it looks like each of these guys has a different problem. But I want you to see, we're gonna look at them each, but I want you to see they're actually one and the same problem. They look different, but actually they're one and the same problem. What keeps us from living under the authority of Jesus is that we put other things in front of him. We put other things before him. And we give those authority in our life. So two application points today, and really we're winding down. I'm, kind of, I'm trying to press it all into these two applications here. So two application points here to help us tease all this out. The first is we must put Jesus before our comfort. We must put Jesus before our comfort. Look again at the first guy in verse 19. And a scribe came up and said to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. We're told this man was a scribe. So these were the highly educated, officially recognized teachers of the law. And it's significant then that this guy would call Jesus, this young untrained rabbi, that he would call him teacher. Scribes were the teachers, not the followers of teachers. So this guy, I mean, this is looking good. At first, this sounds great. You have a scribe who's coming under the teaching of Jesus, and he promises, I will follow you wherever you go. I think there's a lot to admire about this guy. There's a lot to like about him. If he showed up here at this church, we'd say, great, come on in. We've got a membership place for you. We'd be eager to take him in. I'd be eager to take him. I'll speak for myself. I'd be eager to take him in. But Jesus is not so eager. I don't think it's because he didn't want the guy. I think he wanted to know what was really in the guy. Did you notice that the scribe said he would follow Jesus where? Where did he say? Wherever you go. Would he? Because Jesus knows where he's going. He's going across the lake, but beyond that, I mean, he's going to the cross. He knows where he's going. He came to give his life away. You know what's beautiful about this passage? Jesus put his comfort before us, or us before his comfort. That's what's really beautiful here. That's the, the part of discipleship that really this is getting at. Jesus put us before his comfort. That's, that's what the cross teaches us. That's what the incarnation teaches us. Jesus put us before his own comfort, and he's looking at this disciple, and he said, I'm not sure you're going to put me before your comfort or others before your comfort. Jesus knows he's going to the cross because he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Is this guy willing to do the same? Well, Jesus doesn't even bring up the cross. He does in other passages about discipleship like we saw, but he doesn't do that. What he does here is, is he just brings up his general homelessness, his general want. He says, verse 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying, 
Listen, I don't even get to enjoy the common comforts that a fox enjoys or bird enjoys. Foxes were very common there. Birds, obviously, very common everywhere. And so Jesus is saying, listen, like common animals get better comforts than I get. Are you sure you want to follow me? And isn't it interesting, we're not told what the guy decides. We don't know. Maybe he said, I said wherever, I'm in. Like, we don't know, because that's not the point. Instead, Matthew leaves it open so that we are left to ponder what we will decide. Will we put Jesus before our own personal comfort? Because the problem with the crowd was they followed Jesus for what they could get from Jesus. They saw Jesus as a means to their end. He wasn't the end in himself. He was a means to their end. And friends, the draw to this is so strong. Oh my goodness. It's so strong. Jesus as a means of getting healed. Jesus as a means of getting a job. Jesus as a means of getting our life together. Jesus as a means of getting a spouse. Jesus as a means of getting kids. Jesus as a means of getting inner peace. Jesus as a means of getting respect. Jesus as a means of getting a nice little house with the white picket fence, or maybe for you it's the nice little farmstead with the cute little chickens and the goats. I know my church. (laughs) But do you see how we just co-opt Jesus to try and get our version of the American dream? Man. Our safe little life with relative ease and comfort. Yeah, sure, we'll take Jesus. We'll just Christianize the American dream. We'll add into it some church going and some good morals and we'll try not to drink too much and try not to cuss and try not to have sex before marriage and like that's the sum of it. Give me a good life after that. But friends, living under the authority of Jesus is anything but comfortable. It's good, but it's not comfortable. Because when Jesus says, get in the boat and go to the other side, you gotta get in the boat and go to the other side. When he says, we go, you go. When he says, love righteousness, you love righteousness. When he says, share the gospel, you share the gospel, no matter what that costs you. When he says, love your enemy, you lay down your life and love your enemy. So let me ask you, What comforts in your life keep you from following hard after Jesus? What comfort? Listen, don't be be vague here. Community group leaders, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ. I think I can. Don't let people be vague here. What comforts keep you from following hard after Jesus Christ. And men, I feel like this particularly lands on us. Not only us, if you're a woman, you're convicted, great, God's speaking to you too, but pastorally, I just feel, men, what creature comforts keep us from going hard after Jesus? Let's be honest about what holds us back and and then answer this question, Are you willing to let go of it? If necessary, are you willing to let it go? 
And just real practically, think about this. Lent is coming up, right? Age-old tradition in, the, in the, the Christian church to fast from something, to kind of prepare our hearts for the coming Easter. I think it's a great place for us to be thinking, maybe there's a comfort we need to give up for a season. Not because we have to, but because we so desperately want to be better under the authority of Jesus Christ. We want to live there and not feel pulled and drawn towards other things. All right, quickly, then let's look at the other would-be disciple. Application number two, we must put Jesus before our people. We must put Jesus before our comfort and before our people. Verses 21 and 22, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. There are some notable differences here between this man and the scribe, the first guy. To begin with, this guy addresses Jesus as Lord rather than teacher. And perhaps unlike the scribe, this man seems willing to leave home and family. But here's the problem. He was not willing to obey Jesus now, but wanted to obey him later. If the first man was too quick, This man is too slow. Jesus gave orders. He gave orders. Go to the other side. And this man's problem is highlighted by his use of the word, which word? First. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. He was putting family before Jesus. And yet still, let's wrestle with this, right? Because this seems like a pretty reasonable request, right? Like, it seems like, okay, Jesus, help me with this one. Because it seems like, a, seems like an honorable thing to do. It seems like, in fact, in Jesus' times, in biblical times, there was no important duty for a, for a Jew than to bury his own father. But a couple things here. I don't think this guy's dad was actually dead yet. Okay, because if he was, the custom was to bury them immediately. They didn't embalm you. So like within the same day, you would bury them. Right, this, I mean, that's what they did with Jesus. They would just hurry up, calm down, calm down. Like within hours. So what this man is likely saying here, if he, if he need to bury his dad, he'd been doing that right then and there. He wouldn't be with Jesus in the crowds. So the point is, if, is, is probably that he had an older father who he wants to care for and eventually bury and then he'll follow Jesus. But still, even that seems pretty reasonable, right? I mean, I think so. But Jesus discerned something more. Because see, there's a disconnect. There is a disconnect when you say to Jesus, Lord, first let me. You don't call Jesus Lord and then put another priority before his own. Even good priorities like your family. People who follow Jesus, people who follow Jesus in Islamic countries, they get this. They often have to literally give up their family to follow Jesus. The question is, will you, will I, will we? And parents, 
man, in our day, parents, and especially moms. If I felt it pastorally for the men earlier, I feel it especially pastorally for the moms here, but parents in general, moms specifically. This has got to be a question you wrestle with. Will you put Jesus before your children? Because I think sometimes he calls us to follow hard after him, to follow hard after him, even into hard places to help hard people, but we hold back because we're afraid of how it might taint our children or be dangerous for our children. And we say in effect, Lord, let me first go and raise my kids in our safe little family unit, unstained, unsoiled, this safe place. Parents, the question before us is, are we going to put Jesus first? Because if he has ultimate authority, then we have to obey him without qualification or condition. That's what Jesus is getting at here when he says to the man, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. If you're really going to follow me, then you've got to put me before even those closest to you, those most important to you, and you've got to put my priorities ahead of your own priorities. And listen, please don't qualify this message. Don't water it down from Jesus. Don't say, well, yes, of course, but I mean, Jesus would actually let the guy go and and bury his dad, right? Or take care of his dad, right? The answer is no. Jesus expected him to get in the boat and get across that lake with us. Then and there, it was a moment of decision. And so ask yourself today, here's the question we're driving at in this application, what is holding you back from living under the authority of Jesus? Is there someone in your life, your kids, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your boss, who you are putting first in your life before Jesus? Here's another way to look at it. Is there someone you won't forgive? Is there someone you remain angry at? Is there someone you remain afraid of? That's putting someone before Jesus. And then even more broadly, is there something Jesus is calling you to do, calling you to obey him in, and you're essentially saying, Lord, let me first. Jesus is saying, stop doing this, or stop dating this person, or get help with this issue in your life, or go and share your faith with this person, and you're essentially saying, Lord, let me first. I mean, that was my whole thing before I came to salvation in Jesus Christ. I believed Jesus died for my sins. I didn't want to get under his authority. I kept just saying, Lord, let me first live my life. Lord, let me first do what I want to do, and then I'll follow after you. I really, I had this vision. When I grow up, when I got kids and stuff, I'll raise them in the church. Like, I'll come around to you, Jesus, but right now, let me first go live a little. Wasn't a disciple. Wasn't actually a Christian. Wasn't following Jesus. So in conclusion, here's, here's the point of this passage, friends. This is what we're, we're driving at. Jesus is, getting, Jesus is getting in one of those boats, and he's heading to the other side. And his d- true disciples, they're getting in and going with him. They're going to live under his authority. He said, we're going, and so they're going. The question is, what about you? What are you going to do? What are you going to decide?
We're talking about commitment to Jesus Christ. A commitment that manifests itself in simple obedience. Friends, it's just easy to study, right? I mean, to study the Bible, like, listen, I love studying this book, right? I mean, you all know this, like I just, I preach really long messages because I love studying this book and I want you to love studying this book. So studying this book is fantastic, but don't we sometimes just talk this book to death? You ever feel like that? Oh, let's talk about this passage here. So what, does he got, what do y'all think it means when Jesus said, go to the other side? Oh, I, well, I mean, maybe it was the other side of their crowd or maybe it was the other side of the water. No, okay, it's the water. Great, okay. And Jesus said, man, okay, you know, foxes have holes and birds, but the Son of Man has none. What's that like for Jesus to have nothing for us? You know, no place to lay his home. And, and he has, and you know, do you think there's something there for us in that maybe? I mean, I have a home and do you think, I mean, we just talk, 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 talk. And community group becomes just this, we talk, 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 talk about this passage and and the whole point of this passage is driving towards action either you're getting in the boat and you're going or you're not make a decision either you live under my authority or you won't today you decide because I ain't waiting on you I'm getting in the boat and going Jesus is saying I've got one foot in and I'm saying come with me if you want but you got to make a call you got to leave it behind and come under my authority or are you not I'm driving us towards where I think Jesus is driving us, friends, which is action, obedience, follow Jesus, hard. Friends, authority is a wonderful thing. Jesus' authority is a wonderful thing. He is a good king, advancing a good kingdom, and the good news is, is we can get in on it. We can be in his kingdom and enjoy his protection and provision, but we got to count the cost because it means coming under his kingship. And friends, there's nowhere else to be. There's no better place to be, but you've got to make a decision. Are you going to live under the authority of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, words like this one in scripture, they sift our hearts. As Matthew Henry said, it's a passage that tries the crowd, tests us. Are we just a part of the crowd that gathers around Jesus? Or are we the disciples that follow hard after him? Obviously, Ultimately, it's all about if we trust you, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. But the weight of that so often is put on you being our Savior. And it's also our Lord. We're so thankful that you died for our sins. You showed us the, the true heart of your kingdom, your true heart for us. Merciful towards sinners, loving, compassionate. And yet you are a king, a king of righteousness and a king on a mission to save people out of the darkness and the kingdom of darkness in this world. And you are building a church that is advancing against the hell, or the gates of hell. So Lord, I pray that today through this word, you would sift us, you would test us, Lord, and you would help us to discern where are we really in our walk with you? Are we following hard after you? Are we living under your authority? Lord, I pray, I love this church. Lord, I, 
I want them to come under your authority as hard as they can. I want their help in helping me live under your authority, Jesus. And so I pray for the work of your spirit in our midst. God, make us true disciples through and through. And for those who do not know you, I pray that you would give this day the gift of saving faith. That it would be like Matthew, who heard you say, follow me. And he rose and followed you. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.